you open your Bibles with me, please, to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. It's my pleasure whenever I get the opportunity to open the Word. Um, so there's no problem at all to fill in for Brad today, let him focus on his family. Um, Isaiah chapter 49 is where we will be. And if you're anything like me, this book of the Bible is maybe unfamiliar to you, except for a few key passages. And I'm excited to share some of what I've learned. It's the most quoted book in the New Testament by far. So it's an important book. Isaiah 49, it will be up on the screen behind me as well. We're going to read just verses 1 through 13 here. Coast and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my word sharp, like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I myself said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and futility. Yet my vindication is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations." to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One says to the one who is despised, to one abhorred by people, to a servant of rulers. Kings will see, princes will stand up, and they will all bow down because of the Lord who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, I will answer you in a time of favor, and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, to make them possess the desolate inheritances, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They will feed along the pathways, and their pastures will be on the barren heights, They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them, for their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs. I will make all my mountains into a road, and my highways will be raised up. See, these will come from far away, from the north and from the west, and from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, you heavens, earth rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your help now. Um, There's no amount of good speech now that could help turn 
uh, give encouragement to people who are down in their spirit and turn sinful hearts to you. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would be poured out in this place right now, that you'd give me a special word to speak to them, that your word would be impactful, would, would, would give new life where there needs to be new life, give peace and encouragement and strength, and help us to be steadfast and immovable, Lord, in what you call us to do. I ask and I pray this in your precious name. Amen. So the question, I don't know if you've ever faced this before, is, is it worth it? Do you ever feel like your labor is in vain? Another way to say that is, what you're doing, everything you invest your time and your energy to, is it worth your time? I know I struggle with that quite a bit. Whether it's being a parent and saying for the 97th time for that kid to do that thing and trying to train them and teach them and love them and guide them through it and have them not listen to you. Amen? No amens? Okay. Or whether it's you're a worker in your job and you feel like what you're doing doesn't really accomplish much. Or if you're a boss in your job and your workers don't listen to you. If you're a teacher and you're trying to teach and get through to these kids and they're just not listening to, if you're a grandparent who's both trying to support their kids and then love on their grandkids, if you're a neighbor trying to love and care for the people around you, if you're a parent in a school district trying to support and help and bring light to that school district, if you're a pastor laboring over the souls of people, each one of us face that same haunting feeling Is what I'm doing worth it? Is my labor in vain? Well, Isaiah felt that. Now, if you don't know about Isaiah, I want to give you a little bit of the story of his life. He was born under the king of one, and then he was called, actually, as a prophet, probably in his adolescence, 12, maybe to 18 years old, uh, in the year that king who? Does anybody know? King Uzziah died. So in the year King Uzziah died, he's called. Now, at that point, he actually does not begin his ministry for at least 12 years. So he's called as a kid, doesn't begin his ministry for at least 12 years until King Ahaz comes on the scene. There's a king in between there. So three kings so far he's under. Now, here's the thing. When he's called, do you know how he's called? He's the, one of the famous ones that says, here am I, send me. And you know what God's response to him is when he's called to be a prophet? Okay, I want you to preach to them, I want you to teach to them, but they won't listen. Their eyes won't see, their ears won't hear, they won't feel anything to what you're saying. That's what he's told as a teenager. And then he still chose to go into that field of work. Isn't that amazing? So later on, King Ahaz, it skips about 12 years there. Chapter 7 opens with King Ahaz. His first prophetic word that he brings to King Ahaz. And he's, what is going on in the culture at that time is there's this nation that's gaining power. There's a couple other nations, Syria, and then the northern tribes of Israel that seem like they're getting together. The northern tribes of Israel at that time were turning very wicked. Seems like they're getting together and they're going to come down against Uh, Jerusalem and the two southern tribes try to take it over. 
And the prophet Isaiah comes to the king and says, just trust the Lord. It's not going to happen. In fact, there's going to be an even more dangerous enemy that arises. That dangerous enemy is going to be Assyria. Historians regard Assyria as the most brutal nation of all times. They would conquer lands, demand tribute from those lands, but they would do horrific things to not only the soldiers, but uh, everyone in that culture to assert dominance and to keep them uh, afraid. Horrific. Now, they were just coming to power right then. And he comes to Ahaz, Isaiah does, and he says, hey, you know, here's the thing. You should listen. Trust me. And Ahaz is like, no, 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 I'm good. And Isaiah comes back and says, look, I'll give you, uh, the, the Lord himself will actually give you a sign to prove that you can trust what I'm telling you. You don't have to worry about Syria and the northern tribes. There's a more dangerous enemy coming that is actually going to wipe out those two. And the king's like, nah, I'm good. And Isaiah, I think, is a little lost. If you read chapter 8, I'm not going to go back through it all. Isaiah's a little lost, and he's like, what's the point of this? And he needs reassurance from God. And God gives him that reassurance, gives him that confidence, and that's when Isaiah starts a ministry to a very select few disciples, including his wife and a handful, some of which became prophets that wrote books of the Bible, some of the minor prophets that we know of, okay? So that's kind of how his ministry starts. And he focuses ministry then on a a relatively small, let's call it a church, relatively small group of people, the remnant as it's called in some places. So he makes it through Ahaz's uh, reign and he is constantly telling Ahaz, hey, follow the Lord, trust him, pursue righteousness. And Isaiah is like, or uh, Ahaz is like, nah, I'm good. So another king rises up after him. His his name is Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah had one of the longest reigns in Israel's history, and he was a pretty good king. And Isaiah, I think, had, if you read his book carefully, he's like, is this the guy? Because in chapter 9, what does it say? A a child will be born to us. We're going to see a lot of signs on that in the next couple of months, right? Child will be born to us. The government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called... Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the uh, increase of his kingdom and of peace or blessing, shalom, there will be no end. And so I think Isaiah starts to get this mind of like, is this the guy? Is it going to be him? And Hezekiah does great things, but then toward the end, he does some bad things and he falls. And again, the promises, the prophetic promises that Isaiah is given fail. They don't come to pass. And finally, a fifth king during Isaiah's life comes to power. His name is Manasseh, and from tradition, we understand that Manasseh was probably the grandson or a distant relative of Isaiah himself, which means Isaiah was in the kingly line. The tradition that we have tells us that Manasseh was the longest, he was was the longest reigning king, but he was also one of the worst kings the two southern tribes ever saw. Manasseh, being uh, kind of a petulant grandson, refused to listen to Isaiah, but Isaiah refused to stop telling him the truth. And from the records that we have, uh, eventually Manasseh sent soldiers to go find Isaiah. Isaiah went and hid in a hollow tree, hollowed out tree, and Manasseh ordered that tree to be sawn in half with Isaiah in it. 
Hebrews 11 references one of the men who were in the hall of faith, one of the people in the hall of faith, as one who was sawn in two, sawn in half, likely Isaiah. And then it says just a verse later, of whom the world was not worthy. It was during the ministry of Isaiah that the northern tribes, the northern ten tribes, were captured, desolated, and were never heard from again. There was constant fear of Assyria, one of the most violent empires ever in the ancient world. Egypt was still a powerhouse on the southern side. You had Tyre and Sidon who were basically like, they, they couldn't care less, but they were these wealthy, practical uh, nations along the coastline. And Jerusalem is right in the middle of it all, holding a very powerful and strategic place, always in the crosshairs. So that's Isaiah. That's what he found himself in. That's what he was called to. Let's see what Isaiah says. This is a song written, poet, uh, poem written later on. I think it's reminiscing on how Isaiah was called and what he labored through. So let's start again in verse 1. We're going to go through this. Coasts and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. Yes, that does include a calling to be a prophet, but it's more than that. It's an intimate relationship. He knows your name. He knows Isaiah's name before he was born. He made me like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. This isn't talking about a great warrior, but rather God using Isaiah as a tool for righteousness for the people there. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So this is some, showing us something really important showing that not all national and ethnic Israel was really considered by God to be national ethnic Israel. It was only those who truly believed in the promises. And so here God looks at Isaiah and his remnant that are truly believing him and following his righteousness. And he says, you're Israel, my servant. You're the one whom I've chosen. And what is Isaiah's response? Hearing these promises from God and reminiscing on it, thinking about them. What is his response? I myself said I've labored in vain and I've spent my futility for nothing and futility. My, my, my strength for nothing and futility. I love how raw this is because if you... If, if you've ever like heard, well, God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. He's, he's, he works all things together for good. If you're anything like me, you hear those promises like Isaiah hears in verse 1 and 2 and, and 3. And then immediately goes, but I don't like here. I don't got it. I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. I, I don't feel it. I, don't, I have a tough time believing it. Is it worth what I'm doing, God? I've labored for this for years and decades over the span of five kings. Is it worth what I'm doing? And the, the, the way that God answers that is really important. 
See, the way God answers your doubts here today, if you're doubting and struggling with whether what you're doing matters, if you're making a difference, if your labor is in vain or worthless, he comes to you and he says, I've got a word for you. I've got promises for you to help you. And here they are. He tells Isaiah, well, first of all, Isaiah remembers, yet my vindication is with the Lord. So he reminds himself of truth. He reminds himself that ultimately God is the one who is going to make all things right. He's going to judge the sinful. He's going to reward the righteous. It's going to happen. And I, if I'm following him, will be on the right side of that one day. That's the first thing Isaiah does is he reminds himself of that. And then the Lord responds, verse 5, now says the Lord, well, who is the Lord? Well, he's the one who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. That's That's really wordy, but what you have to pay attention to is he's defining who's talking to him there. Who's talking to him? It's the one who's already formed you. It's the one who had, from when Isaiah was in the womb and before he was even born, had set a purpose for Isaiah's life, had called him by name, had ordained the steps of his life to fulfill his purposes. He's a powerful God who called you. That one who is the one who is the strength and the one who honors the sight of his servants. That one says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. It's not enough for you to only do this small task. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And like I said at the beginning, Isaiah's, the book of Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament. A New Testament which then grows and spans out across the world. And if you remember, some of you may not know, it's okay if you don't, in the the book of Acts, there's this eunuch from another country who's traveling on a chariot. And God comes to a man named Philip, a servant, a, a teacher, and he says, Philip, I want you to go talk to that man. And when Philip draws near to him, what does he hear the eunuch reading? What book? Isaiah, a light for the nations. You see, the promise was eventually fulfilled for Isaiah. Isaiah didn't see fruit in that day, in his day. He saw limited impact. A few, maybe dozen people. We don't know exactly. It's never defined for us. That's his impact. And yet he preached and taught and labored and ministered for decades And yet he became a light for the nations later on. It goes on, verse 7, this is what the Lord says. Who's the Lord? He's the redeemer of Israel, the one who buys Israel back from the slave market. He's the holy, or his holy one says, it's probably a reference to Jesus. He says to Isaiah, the one who is despised, abhorred by the people. He's a servant of rulers. So he's talking to Isaiah who's been humiliated. Then he says to Isaiah, yes, I know you feel like your labor's in vain. I know you feel like you've been embarrassed and shamed by other leaders. 
One day kings will see, princes will stand up, and they will all bow down because of the Lord who is faithful. They're going to bow down. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not to Isaiah, but Isaiah's message is going to impact that. He goes on, he says, to the Holy One of Israel, he has chosen you. Verse 8, this is what the Lord says. What does God say? What does God say to us in a moment where we're doubting whether or not it's worth it? He says, I will answer you in a time of favor. I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and make them possess the desolate inheritances. So remember where Isaiah's at. He's in this nation. The 10 northern tribes have been taken away into cafeteria by Assyria. Only two ones are left. And it's all desolate. In other words, it's, it's like, um, it's bare. It's like a tenth of their population is left. Fields that were once farmer fields are no longer kept up. It's deserted and desert land because they're not tended anymore. And he says here, I will restore the land to Isaiah. You're seeing all of this bad now. I will one day restore the land and I will bring um, God's people back to tend this land. I will do it. And he says, saying to the prisoner, verse 9, come out. And to those who are in darkness, show yourself. Stop hiding in the caves from the enemy army that's coming after you. And then you're going to come out and you're going to feed along the pathways. We don't have this sense in our world today, but you can imagine long journeys, how, you know, riding on animals or walking those long journeys, how amazing it would be to just have rows of fruit trees you could grab your food on your, on your journey. Instead, what was there at the time was rocky, craggy desert land. So in other words, even the pathways are going to be fruitful in that day. And you know, though, the top of those mountains that look really rocky and like nothing could ever grow there, you know those? Their pastures will be on the barren heights. That's going to be fruitful land. They will not hunger or thirst anymore. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them. That is, yes, somewhat literal, but earlier on in the book of Isaiah, that the sun is compared to Assyria. So the enemies that are coming after you to torture you and torment you, they're going to be gone. You don't have to fear that anymore. For their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs says, I will make all my mountains into a road and all my highways will be raised up. See, these will come from far away, the north and the west from the land of Sinem. These, uh, the ones that are coming are the remnant coming back after they have been taken into captivity. And this is the response. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. The response that God gives to Isaiah in his moment of doubt, is it worth it? Is promise after promise after promise after promise. And it's a wonderful thing that our God does for Isaiah there. Let me get my note turned. I apologize here. Make sure I'm in the right place.
Now, I want to tell you that Isaiah is not the only one who, who worried about whether or not his labor was in vain, whether or not what he did mattered. And I've, I've tried to impact that, but do, do you recognize that phrase at all? The New Testament, Paul actually says it to three different churches. Four, actually, but we're going to talk about three here. Galatians 4, verse 11, he says to, to Galatia, the, the church there, laboring over their soul because they're believing a wrong gospel. He says, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. I've worked for your salvation and it's not going to bring any fruit. He says to Philippians, um, we want you to be holding fast to the word of life so in the day of Christ, that day in the future, I may be proud that I didn't labor in vain because there's fruit for what I did for Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith because I was worried for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. It's a haunting reality. Now, I want to point out too and kind of tie this back even a little further. Do you remember in Genesis 3 when the initial fall happens what the curse was that was placed. Yes, there was a curse placed on the woman. What was the curse that was on work? Do you remember? Think through that. Galatians 3, if you want to study it later. It's going to be thorny ground. You're going to labor hard over something by the sweat of your brow. And the idea there is that it's going to be going to yield very little fruit. In other words, I mean, work has always been a good thing. It's always been here and it will always be there in the future. But the bad parts of work will be gone. So in other words, your labor in the future are going to be fruitful, abundant, and you're going to be fulfilled in what you're doing. That's the promise that one day when things are made right, that's going to happen. But for right now, what's going on in, in this world is that this world is cursed the labor that you do over your kids to train them up to know what's good and to love Jesus, that labor feels like work. Feels like by the sweat of your brow. Feels pretty thorny sometimes, right? <laughs> the kid feels kind of thorny sometimes, right? That grandkid that you labor over and maybe has wandered from the faith. The work that you do where every, you know, right, I'm a home mortgage consultant and uh, right now, if you haven't heard, interest rates are very high. So guess what that means? I'm, I'm, I'm working as hard as I can to get just enough for my family, right? And you taste this too. If you've ever started your own business, right? You work so hard to make your dream a reality. And how often does a business actually take off and is really fruitful and you can thrive off of? It's not always. It's hard. Or what about being a teacher? Many of you in here are teachers. You labor over these kids. You, you try to drill it into their head. And then the test time comes and you're like, why did I even talk at all the last week? They didn't hear anything I said. Your labor feels so often in vain. And especially, I want to say especially, as you work with people to try to teach them and show them Jesus, right? 
Because the working of, in, where the Holy Spirit is working, it's not always immediately evident. If you're trying to start a business, you can tell in your bottom line whether or not things are improving. But with somebody, you're like, am I getting through? Am I not? And you work for them, and you love them, and you care for their physical needs. And you meet with them hour after hour, and you have them stay at your house, and you share meals together. And then they walk away from the faith. And you're like, I spent hours for you. Is my labor in vain? Ultimately, this passage is not only a passage about Isaiah and us, though. So one of the things that Isaiah builds from, it's like chapter 42-ish to chapter 54. He's building out a picture, and it's poetry, so it's hard. It's not like linear thinking. You got to really study it and read it and meditate on it. But he builds out what this picture is of a servant who's coming of a servant who is somehow going to be this light for the nations, somehow is going to be the covenant for the people. And so ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. So I want to go back through this passage really quick with Jesus in mind. Verse 1 and 2, he talks about being called from the womb and equipped for a specific purpose. Jesus is called as a prophet, He was designated to come to this earth to be a savior, to bring people back to God. Verse 3, he said, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Jesus is the perfect Israel. Israel was always supposed to be this this, um, light for the nations to show the nations God's righteousness and God's law and how it's better. They were always supposed to be that and they always failed miserably. And so Jesus had to come, be the perfect human, obey God's law perfectly and be a representative so that all who believe in him can receive God's blessings. It goes on, Verse 4, I'm going to skip verse 4 for a second. I will come back to that in a second. Uh, Verse 6, it says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. No, I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus is too important, too worthy, too glorious to be a local hero. It's not enough for him to just be a hero, a savior for the people in this room. It's not enough for him to be a savior for just the Israelites. It's not enough for him to just be the savior for whatever different group of people out there, the poor, the rich, Americans, Mexicans, Russians, Ukrainians. It's not enough for him to be a hero or a savior for any one people group. He deserves the glory from every tribe, every people, every nation because of what he did on the cross. He 
He's deserving of that. And that's why we're given the great commission to go preach the gospel to all nations. It's because he's worthy. It goes on, verse 7, this is what the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One says to one who is despised, to one abhorred by the people, to the servant of rulers. Jesus, we see in Isaiah 53 and then we see later on, he was despised and rejected by men, right? What do you think he felt when he stood up to the crowd of 5,000, probably more like 12,000 at least people, maybe more, and he said, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And then many walked away because they stumbled over what he said. What do you think he felt when one day he's riding in to um, Jerusalem on a donkey being proclaimed as the king of Israel and three days later the same crowd is saying crucify him? What do you think he felt when his own disciples in that garden could not even stay awake with him when he begged them to, he asked them to? What do you think he felt when all of the disciples ran away from him at the cross? He was despised and rejected of men. He was hated for who he was. And yet, verse 8 This is what the Lord says. I will answer you in a time of favor. I will help you in a day of salvation. I will keep you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people. This blood is the covenant in my blood. Is the covenant. I'm sorry. This cup is the covenant in my blood, he says. When he institutes communion for us. It is through Jesus That we can inherit a world that is free from the curse and pain and suffering. It is through Jesus that prisoners of sin, of shame, of guilt, and ultimately of judgment can be set free and called out of the darkness into light. It is through Jesus that the world can be restored to Eden and we can eat freely of its blessings. It's through him that he makes a way for us to come to God. And he has given us the comfort and the compassion of God. And it it is he that has made it so that God will never leave us or forsake us. He has crushed the enemies of Satan, principalities, sin, death, and hell. It's Jesus that does all this. And listen, I know there are some of you in here today who have never tasted of the glory of Jesus. You've heard this story. You've you've understood it, maybe even, but you haven't made it your own. You haven't trusted it, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, to pay your punishment for sins. And then he rose again, and that can restore you to God so that you can be God's child and go to heaven and be with him one day in a place that's free from curse, from the curse of, of sin and death and thorny work. You're going to be with him one day if you trust that. And I want to invite you today, if you don't know the glory of Jesus, to believe that. Do you think that it's possible, verse 6, given that ultimately Jesus is the fulfillment of this servant? Do you think that it's possible that Jesus ever asked or said, Have I labored in vain? 
When thousands left his side after he fed them fish and bread, do you think he struggled with that? How about in the garden when he called out to God, let this cup pass from me? The core of that prayer is this haunting question, is what I'm about to do really worth it? Or how about when he cried out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani? Did he doubt whether losing the immediate relationship with God in that moment because the sin of the world was being placed on his shoulder, did he doubt whether it was worth it? Now I want to be careful. Jesus was sinless, amen? Never sinned. Does that mean he was never tempted? Yet through this labor, he brings many children to the Father's side. So I want to give you some hope. What are some lessons we can take away here? Number one, I want you to hear this carefully. Jesus has endured all manner of temptation and suffering just like you, yet he did it without sin. That means he knows what you're going through. He's tasted the curse of this world. He experienced, he, he lived in it, of thorny labor. He felt it. Never marred by sin, but that makes him able to understand what you are going through at this minute Hold your hand through it and say, I know, I know, I've been there, I know. Number two, our immediate fruit does not determine whether or not it's worth it. It does not and it cannot. We labor for fruit. We want to see what we do matters as we labor over our kids, as we labor for people to come to Jesus. We want to see success in our business. We want to do well in this life. That's a good motivation, but your immediate fruit does not determine whether or not it's worth it. It can't. It can't. You live in a sin-cursed world, and the reality is you will not always experience immediate fruit. There will be moments Pockets of fruit that you get to taste and enjoy. But you can't wait for those to keep after the work. Number three, we fulfill our callings as a parent, as a teacher, as a pastor, as a neighbor. We fulfill our callings not because we know we will be successful but because we know the God who called us to it. Is not God worthy of it? As you meditate and think about who Jesus is and what he went through and how he suffered for you and all the blessings he gives to you, if he told you to stand in the corner the rest of your life, you should be like, yeah, sure, okay. Fourth, God has specifically called and equipped each of us to fulfill what he has for us. I want you to hear this. This is important. How does Isaiah start this chapter? 
He called me before I was born, made my word sharp like a sword, verse 2. God had equipped Isaiah before he was born, had planned to make him able to carry out what God called him to do. Look, you're a grandpa today, you're a parent today, you're a teacher today, whatever it is, your neighbor in your community, God has you there for a reason and he has equipped you to be in that exact moment. Don't doubt that. He's going to be there with you. Trust him and keep after the work because he's called you to it and he's equipped you for it. A couple others. Immediate and eternal promises from God. Verse 14 Uh, Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forsaken me. And Jesus, the Lord, responds back, can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Look, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He's got a tattoo of your name on his hand. He's not forgetting you. Um, if you're anything like me, I remember the things that matter, right? I know how many points I scored in fantasy football last week, right? If you ask me how many points a Boston Celtic player averaged last year, I would be able to tell you, right? If my wife asks me to remember to pick up something from the store when I go there and I forget, what does that say? It's a joke. I shouldn't, right? It should matter to me, right? If God says, I will not forget you, what is he saying? You matter to me. I love you. I'm not forgetting you. I could never forget you. So that's another promise. You're you're not forgotten by God. You're not forsaken by God. Another point that I want you to remember, you have to carry this with you, verse 4. My vindication is with the Lord. My reward is with my God. God will one day show all that your labor wasn't in vain. What you do matters today. And he will reward you one day if you're faithful. Well done. Good job. Enter into my rest. And then verses 8 through 13, I'll just drop this in. God will secure for us all our deepest longings, including safety, security, and blessing. There is coming a day in the future in heaven when there will be no curse, there will be no death, there will be no pain, there will be no suffering, there will be no sorrow. He's going to wipe all tears away from our eyes. And we will live in peace and blessing with him for all eternity. Finally, God has and then will finally defeat our enemies. This is from later in the chapter. You can read it on later. It's, it's done poetically, focused on uh, Assyria particularly, but Assyria is a type of all of our enemies. And the New Testament offers use this language here to say, look, you know sin, death, you know the sins you struggle with in your heart right now? He's going to defeat it. He has defeated it, and he can give you victory over it, and one day you will no longer struggle with it. On the basis of these promises, 
1 Corinthians 15. On the basis of these promises, and the promises that Jesus has already rose again, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, have strength, keep after it, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Continue to pursue the work that God has put in front of you, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we quiet our hearts now and we agree with Isaiah. <laughs> that we often wonder if what we're doing is worth it. We often struggle with the curse and we doubt and we pause and we don't keep after our work like we should because we're just, we're not sure. And I thank you that we have Isaiah as an example and ultimately Jesus as an example of one who stayed after your work. And we have the example here in Isaiah 49 of all of the promises you give to us to give us the strength we need to do what you have put in front of us to the best of our ability. So I pray that you would give great clarity to every single person in here what their callings are. I pray that you would give great clarity and understanding to what these promises are. And I pray that these promises would be fuel to push them forward in their callings, to help them do it from their heart, with love and service to you, to do it to the best of their ability. I pray that they would find a reserve in you of resources to do what you call them to do each day. I thank you for Jesus. Lord, I thank you that he's worthy. Father, I thank you that he's, he, it was too small of a thing that he would only be for Israelites, but he's also a savior for me around the world and to every nation around the world. I thank you that he not only is a savior for all of the world, but he's a savior that saves in such a wonderful way. He saves me from sin and selfishness and, 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 and shame and guilt and the condemnation from sin. And he saves me to righteousness and to your side. He saves me to heaven one day, Lord. Thank you for that promise. I thank you we have a wonderful Savior who's gone before us. I pray that you would help us to pursue you and give us the strength in the week ahead. We ask and we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, I appreciate you being here. And Brad, I appreciate the opportunity to preach here. And uh, I hope you'll take this with you and be steadfast and movable in the coming week. Um, we've gathered. Now let's scatter on mission. Thanks so much. You're dismissed.